Welcome to the DEI Discussions podcast series. This is the Women of Fintech chapter, and we are here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the talk for change across the entire financial technology industry. Today, we are joined by Alyssa DiCaprio, Chief Economist at R3. R3 is a leading provider of enterprise blockchain technology. In this role, Alyssa oversees R3's research and market intelligence functions. This includes providing economic advice on developments in blockchain, digital assets, central bank digital currencies, trade and payments, as well as contributing to R3 interactions with the public sector. She is here today to share how she walks the talk for inclusion in our sector and what more she wants done. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Brilliant. So tell us a little bit more about R3 and the mission. Sure. R3 started out as a consortium of 42 banks. So it's always worked in the regulated financial industry. What it does today is we build and maintain the blockchain platform called Corda, which is used largely by central banks, commercial banks, financial market infrastructures, but is a blockchain that's that's applicable across sectors. And the mission really around R3 is to create an open and connected digital economy. Big mission and also big role, you being the chief economist. So tell us a bit more about that. Well, being a chief economist means that I head up our research and advisory efforts on digital currencies, on digital assets, on payments and trade. So it's a lot about working with our partners and helping understand how the macroeconomic environment affects the choices that they make and the design decisions that we have on the platform. I love that. So, so fascinating, everything you're doing. And your career journey, it's been global. It's taken you to many countries. It's taken you along many avenues. I was really interested in hearing more about that journey. And and also, was chief economist always the goal? (laughs) It's a great question. It certainly was not. Economics was always a focus for me. So I started studying it as an undergraduate and in graduate school. And my my particular interest was in international economics because of the intricacies of the global economic system and how it responds to shocks and, and rebalances after always kind of fascinated me. So this led to a range of roles that I would take at the UN, in Asian Development Bank, where I was focused on digital transformation, how trade and trade finance are are updating as a result of this. And then that moved over into blockchain because in my last position with Asian Development Bank, I was largely responsible for calculating the global trade finance gap which is a number that looks at how big the gap is between supply and demand for trade finance. And we found that small and medium-sized enterprises simply are rejected at a much higher rate than large enterprises for trade finance. And this is something that has not changed over time and we were unable to force change. But blockchain was really something that I saw as potentially adjusting that. And so I moved over to R3. Thank you for sharing that with us. I can imagine you get asked so many questions about all the avenues of your work and looking at what's been published recently, I can see people have been really interested in asking you about CBDC regulation. What is the key part of this that we need to be considering? Well, okay. so while I think it's important to think about central bank digital currencies, I also think that the regulatory trends we're seeing are a little bit broader than that. So, for example, 
one of the things that we're seeing in the regulated space is a contraction of the regulatory perimeter around cryptocurrencies. So this is governments passing regulation, MICA, for example, in, in the EU, to make it more difficult to use or hold cryptocurrency for uh, the regulated financial industry primarily, but other entities as well. At the same time, though, we're seeing this expanding focus on digital assets. So this is things like the FMI sandbox, the ESMA pilot regime, where governments are really making a concerted effort to understand how people use digital assets and how digital assets could be used to transform capital markets. So central bank digital currency falls into all of this because central bank digital currency answers the question of what if your money was natively digital? which is different than electronic money, which is you know credit cards and things. But CBDC is really around governments trying to produce a new form of money that can use a lot of the social arrangements that we have and the sort of institutional infrastructure that we have around currency, but allow it to be digital. So I, you know, I think the trends of contraction and expansion, as well as this focus from governments on digital currency is really what's so transformative about this sector. Yeah, absolutely. And this transformation, it's it's happening on lots of different levels. And I know also with your global experience, you've got this sort of global vantage point on gender equality in the workplace as well. So I was really keen for you to share your thoughts on that also. So I think gender equality has changed over time. I remember when I was in graduate school, my advisor who was a woman, would be treated abominably on panels. I, I think that's less common today, where there's this sort of very clear, very public disrespect. But today, the bias still exists, but it's more unconscious. So I think, you know, going from how it was in the past to how it was today, I think, you know, today what we're seeing is there is an effort to increase diversity in teams. People understand that you don't want to have only men or only people from one country in, in your team. So I think that's good. But sometimes the habits we fall into aren't that helpful. So I think there's two that I would, I would call out in particular. The first is panels. Often when there's a panel at a conference and there's only one woman on it, she is the moderator. And there was a, there was a great article in, in GTR uh, maybe two years ago about this. She called them manals which I thought was funny. But there is this assumption that if there's a woman, she is less qualified and should be the moderator because she doesn't really need to say anything. She could just ask questions. That looks like diversity, but it isn't. And then the second is this, what I would call excellence as the norm. So it's pretty unlikely that you're going to come across a female manager who isn't working much harder than her colleagues. So there's still this culture that very much expects women managers to be amazing and above average, where in, in terms of their male counterparts, I've had plenty of average or below average managers. So I think until we see that situation for women, we haven't exactly a, achieved equality. And actually, to those two things, let me add one more. One of the things that we were talking about before the podcast started, which is about hiring managers and sticking to timelines. One thing that I learned very quickly is if you're trying to recruit a diverse team, you need a little bit more time because your recruiters might not be giving you the candidates that you are looking for. 
I have certainly had to push back where HR says we need to hire someone today and I have to say I will not hire anybody that you've given me in this pool until I have a more diverse pool that I can look at. And so it's it's important to just recognize that you're going to need more time if you want to hire a diverse team and you need to be willing to put in that time as a hiring manager. So those are the kind of three differences I see in the equality discussion today. And really poignant for me to hear you say that, like I I relate to everything that you've said there on a personal level. So thank you for sharing that. But we have made steps forward and championing inclusion in the workplace is central to that. How far would you say we have come? Well, you know, as I stated earlier, I, I, I do think that we've come pretty far going from conscious to unconscious bias. That's a benefit. You know, we have to admit that. But Maybe the way that I'll answer this is I recently published a paper with three co-authors and we looked at women heads of multilateral institutions. You know, the reason we started writing this is because all of a sudden over the past couple of years, you're seeing like Christine Lagarde, you're seeing Rebecca Greenspan at UNCTAD, you're seeing Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala at, at the WTO. We're seeing a lot of what looks like women heads of institutions, and this looks like a huge change. And so what we wanted to do in this paper is see if this was in fact a shift in what is happening or was just outliers, where there are you know five or six very prominent women right now, and next year that won't look the same or at the end of their, their terms. And We found a few very interesting things that I think could answer your question about how far we've come. And the first is, you know, women's representation has made gains at lower levels, but they still have limited inroads into leadership roles. So if you're looking at, for example, your entire staff and the gender diversity of your staff, that's looking much better. And it's been looking better for years. But if you're looking at leadership roles, that's still increasing and becoming better, but at a much lower level. The second point that I found most interesting is that most of the data about women in leadership is driven by, and this is multilateral institutions only, is driven by a subset of institutions. And so what that means is there are some institutions that hire women over and over again as leaders, and some institutions that never hire them or hire them once and then not again. That I thought was was pretty fascinating. I guess another one would be about the staffing profile. So we wanted to know if having a woman leader would make the staff more diverse. And what we found is this this like very particular result, which is that when you have the first woman leader, head of a multilateral institution, doesn't really change staff diversity. When you have a history of having women leaders, then you start to see it change. The role of women, they become more in leadership positions and management positions, as well as a greater proportion of the workforce. And this is a very long answer, but maybe the last point is just about how do we get to this situation? We didn't just look at women heads of institutions. We looked at nominees. So we looked at the nominee pool to see if that told us anything. And what we found was that often women are not included in the nominee pool, but when they are, they are often chosen. So that gets to the point again about equality in the workplace. So if you want a more diverse team, you need to have a more diverse recruitment pool. You need to have a more diverse set of people from whom you're choosing, because we've seen when that happens, they're pulled into leadership positions. So I think bringing this all back to fintech, these are all trends we've seen, right? And these are all trends that we've talked about having, you know, the the difficulty of having the right recruitment pool, the difficulty of not being in leadership positions, 
everything is changing now that people understand the value of having diverse teams, but it's changing slowly, but at least it's changing. And, and so I'm very positive about that. And it's super fascinating to hear everything that you say, because you're coming from such an angle of knowledge and experience and research. And, you know, I, I love that you're able to share what you've seen and what you found by doing that with us. It's a privilege to hear it. It takes me to my final question. So I always introduce these podcasts saying we're here today to walk the talk for change. So in a pod, we're talking, but also I want that to encourage people to turn that talk into action. And I'm a true believer that for inclusion in all our workplaces, it needs for everybody to be involved. So I wanted to ask you, what would you like to see more of from the audience, from people around you for genuine workplace inclusion? For genuine workplace inclusion, I think the thing that I would like to see is a recognition that often candidates that come from a diverse background need mentors. We don't necessarily come to this with a pre-existing structure of supporters, of people that are able to pull us in and able to explain what actions we should take. So I think the, the mentorship angle is important. I've certainly had mentors in the past, men and women, that were very, very important to my trajectory. And I think they are important for the success of an organization in making diversity a fundamental part of the institutional framework and the social arrangements within the institution. So I, I would say that that for me is critical. Two other things, don't have different expectations for the females on your team. Don't assume that they will act differently or should do different roles than the men. I think this is sometimes an issue. And just remember that this is a positive development that we should all be proud of. We should be proud that we have these diverse teams and, you know, talk about it and be clear that that's an important part of the institutional framework. It's not enough to just aspire to something. I think we've seen that. And the, the data actually shows that. But I think increasingly that aspiration is becoming more fundamentally part of how the hiring process works and, and the success of women in an organization. Brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and learning from you today in this podcast series. So thank you for joining us for the DEI discussions. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was great. 